Welcome to JPod, the podcast on journalists and journalism. I am your host, Krishna Prasad. Correspondent is an exotic bird quickly going extinct. Once upon a time, Indian newspapers had correspondents in many of the world's news hotspots. Washington and London certainly, but also Islamabad and Colombo, Dubai and Dhaka, Paris, Brussels, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, Johannesburg, even Sao Paulo, all of them have seen some kind of Indian presence. To be posted abroad was a badge of honor for a news reporter. And to depend on your own man rather than Associated Press or Reuters was a matter of pride for a newspaper. Today, most media outlets have exactly one foreign correspondent or none. It is as if with more money in the system, there is less of an incentive to have your own ears and eyes. And it is as if with the world at her fingertips, the reader desires to know less of the world outside her phone. The Telegraph has the excellent Amit Roy in London. But he's a foreign correspondent twice over. Long before he began covering Europe for the Calcutta newspaper, Amit Roy had reported for Britain's biggest newspapers, the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail, the Sunday Times and the Sunday Telegraph from Cairo and Tehran and Buenos Aires. In this episode of J-Pod, Amit Roy retraces his extraordinary journey to Fleet Street via Patna. Mr. Amit Roy, long-time correspondent of the Telegraph in London and a fabulous wordsmith whose work is a daily reminder of how much fun journalism can be. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of J-Pod and it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Amit Roy. Thank you, Krishna. Amitda, you have written millions of words, but there is so little about the trajectory of your life and times when I try to search for it. And I spoke to a few of your colleagues, former and present, and all they could provide me were very skimpy details. So first up, let me just hear from the horse's mouth, the Amit Roy story in short. Where were you born? Where were you schooled? And how did you end up in England? And how did you take your first baby steps in our wonderful profession? Mm. No, thank you, Krishna. Um, actually, there isn't that much to tell. Um, you know, some people say, oh, Amit, he's modest. But I'm always reminded of what Churchill said when um, someone said, you know, that labor leader, Atlee, is very modest. And Churchill said, well, he's got a lot to be modest about. So I think um, I fall into that category. Uh, I was born in Assam simply because there was a big Bengali community there and that's where my mother grew up and I heard lots of stories about how tigers used to roam the back garden. So this was a long time back. My maternal grandfather was a lawyer and a farmer so he had a bit of a tea garden, a paddy field. But really my growing up was mostly in Patna um, happy memories of uh, St. Xavier's. And I like the fact that you grew up with people from all religions, 
Only now I'm conscious uh, that I grew up with Muslims or Christians. Then they were just your friends, you know. They were either part of your gang or not part of your gang, or your loyalty belonged to the house that you belonged to. So it was a very English setup, and I didn't realize how English it was with houses and quadrangles. And we were thrashed from time to time, and my younger brothers used to stand on the sidelines and cheer. But um, it was a rigorous uh, upbringing. Um, most important thing was cricket, which I'm happy to say. And we were taught, listen, whatever you do, there mustn't be a gap between bat and pad. So when I came to England and they didn't care about it, I was quite shocked. Not only they didn't play cricket, but also they left a gap between bat and pad. So um, the growing up was in Patna, sleepy town. After that, English was very important. And I remember um, I owe a lot to Father Cleary. People who went to St. Xavier's will remember Father Cleary. I remember him teaching the Jungle Book. And he would say, you know, the moon was shining over the Sioni Hills. And even today I can see in my mind's eye the moon shining. And we were taught to recite poetry by heart, uh, stand in a certain way, take a deep breath. And um, so if you got a word wrong, you got a one big tupper. I can recite bits of Julius Caesar, which remains my favorite play and it teaches you a lot about politics actually so when I do politics um, one good rule is always to remember that things always go from bad to worse good good lesson for journalists especially when you are abroad so basically um, very happy memories of Patna and when I left Patna as a schoolboy the whole school turned up and I remember when I left Patna as a going away present there was a boy called Deshpriya Mukherjee, who was a tall um, bowler, and he said, listen, Amit, you're going away very far. I'll give you one gift which I have not, not given lightly. I'll teach you leg spin bowling. That turned out to be devastating because um, at school level in England, they didn't know about leg spin bowling. I mean, what is this thing that you pitch outside the leg stump and it spins in? Um, it's not at all a Christian building. Fantastic. That's from one leg spinner to another. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, Amitda, your late father worked for the BBC Bengali service, and that's how I presume you ended up in London. Yes. And he, of course, also later worked for the Amrita Bazar Patrika in Calcutta. Yes. Plus, he was also with the Indian Nation and the Searchlight newspapers in Patna. Yes. Tell us more about him because there seems to be so much journalism in your family. How was it growing up with a father who worked for the great Tushar Kanti Ghosh, yes. possibly also during the emergency? I want to really know a little more about your father and your initiation into the journalism process. Yes, Tushar Kanti Ghosh, you know, the Amrit Bazar Patrika has a long history and involvement in the Indian independence movement. So my father, he was born in Rangoon because there was a big Bengali community in Rangoon before the war. And uh, at the age of 19, he became a stringer for the Amrit Bazar Patrika. And he had a, I mean, the peacock is the symbol of, of uh, Burma. And he had a little peacock uh, tattoo on his arm. 
And it's funny that um, after he left the BBC, he went back to the Amrit Bazar Patrika. So it's a circular thing. In between, you know, he began in Delhi and then he worked in Patna. Uh, I remember him sitting in the sun writing his editorials with his Parker pen, which he got us to polish. Um, so I like to say that um, although I, I didn't uh, do uh, humanities at university, uh, did science, um, I like to think uh, maybe I was a journalist before I was born because uh, you absorb it by a process of osmosis. So when I did become a journalist, um, in, his initial thought was, uh, why don't you do science and become a scientist during the day and you can write a bit in the evening but uh, you know um, life has its own trajectory he gave me one bit of advice which I've never been able to follow he said um, because he was sacked so many times he wrote an editorial about the Koshi River which is called the Sorrow of Bihar and uh, that was when India was under British rule and the governor I think a man called Rutherford called him in and said, listen, young Roy, you're a bit hot-headed, but um, just calm down and moderate your editorials. And he was a bit fiery then, as always. He said, Your Excellency, I will not take out a comma. And the paper was owned by the Maharaja of Darbhanga, who said that he would back my father, of course, because the pressure put on him. He was sacked the next day. My poor mother suffered with a lot of this because he was so often without a job. He said, um, never compromise and always carry your letter of resignation in your pocket. You know, noble words, but I've not been able to live up to that. To which part of that? Any part. The compromising of part or the second part? Any part, any part. He was a big man and he held court and um, he gave me bits of advice from time to time, not a lot. But uh, just to tell you, you mentioned Tushar Babu. During my vacations at university in England, I used to go and work at my... I, I, I suppose I learnt journalism at my father's feet. And I think I used to stand outside the Omrit Bazar Patrika, which was a rickety building in Bagbajar, which some journalists would remember. And in the evening, I used to come out. And it was, you know, there was a nala outside. It was quite smelly. But I would hear the papers winding up. And then you hear the thunder as the presses roll. And to me, it was, you know, music. And I used to edit, help edit the Puja Shankha, you know. And Tushar uh, Babu wrote a, 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 a travel piece. Uh, he used to love traveling by uh, train. And it was called um, Travel in Goods Train. But there was a literal. And it came out in the printing as travels in God's train. So I corrected it to good strain. So someone came and said, So he was God. Fantastic. You know, the Indian nation does not exist anymore. Searchlight does not exist anymore. The Amrita Bazar Patrika does not exist anymore. Does that tell you something about the ephemeral nature of the business we are in? That's something we journalists tend to take so seriously, can be gone in a flash, can be so easily forgotten. Yes. Um, it's sad because uh, they are so much a part of my family's history. But on the other hand, 
Um, I am a bit more positive because um, uh, when television came, people said print journalism would disappear. But now I think we've reached a symbiotic relationship because um, television depends so much for story ideas on print newspapers. And something Andrew Neil, who was the editor of the Sunday Times, said, he, you know, he also um, is chairman of a magazine, famous magazine, very old magazine called The Spectator, which he started in America. And he found that it was digital only and it wouldn't sell. But they introduced a print version and it took off. And Andrew said something, I think, quite uh, uh, interesting and important that you need um, a, a, a print version along with the digital for success. So if you just have a paper that is uh, digital, it will not succeed as much as if you had print and digital. And I think more and more papers are relying on digital, but I take the view that certainly in England and I think in India, people like to you know hear the rustle of newspapers and like to look through papers with your cup of tea. So I'm not as pessimistic as people were once upon a time. You know, you spoke of doing stints uh, in Calcutta for the Amrita Bazaar Patrika during your holidays with your father. And you also spoke of actually learning journalism at the feet of your father, more or less, uh, you know, at home. Did you ever consider ever taking up work full-time in India or was a career in Fleet Street always a foregone conclusion from the very beginning? I did think of it like that. I think that once I started writing, um, nepotism helped a lot because my father being an editor, he would um, send me when I went home. And there were long vacations at university, you know, three months. So I would write and go and see people in Calcutta. And I'd, so I built up a, a portfolio of cuttings with which I got my first job in England. And once you begin on a small paper in England, you know, one thing leads to another. And uh, you can't transplant. You've got to grow up in a place. Um, so as a young adult, I had grown up in England. So it would have been a little bit more difficult. And now that I work for The Telegraph from London, it's in a way the best of both worlds. I'm working for an Indian paper from London, which is great fun. You know, you've worked for broadsheet newspapers like the Glasgow Herald and the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph, but you've also worked for a tabloid, the Daily Mail. Yes. What did the tabloid experience teach you and why do you think they haven't worked in India? Um, well, the Daily Mail is tabloid-shaped. So the Guardian is also not quite tabloid, but the Times has also become tabloid. So this distinction between tabloid newspapers and broadsheets is less than it used to be. So I think the tabloids, you could say the red tops. I don't know why they haven't worked in India. Maybe people associate journalism with broadsheet newspapers. But for me, I think the, the for my four years on the mail 
were the happiest. And I moved from the Telegraph after a very long time. As a, as a, as a kid, cub reporter, I grew up on the Daily Telegraph. And it, they took a big risk in taking this Indian chokra. You know, they know nothing about me. They took me on. And in those days, you didn't have uh, non-white reporters. So I was one of the early ones, perhaps the first one. So when I moved to the, to the, to the, to the mail, they offered me a job. Uh, Peter Eastwood, who was my managing editor, he, he knew India a lot. He said, look, you're a nice, quiet Bengali boy. You'll be chewed up by the Daily Mail, which is a rough paper. And uh, the wrong thing to say to me, and I thought, took it as a challenge. And English said to me, he was, David English, whom I consider the greatest editor that uh, Britain has produced, said to me, look, Amit, you know, I've been seeing your stuff in the Daily Telegraph. You were doing quite well, but recently you've not been getting that many stories in. You come to the mail and um, I'll, I'll look after you. And when I left the Telegraph, my colleagues, who were very nice, gave me a card which read, Amit, congrats on becoming an Englishman. <laughs> That's so beautifully said, but uh, you've d done a bit of Indian journalism in India through the Amrita Bazar Patrika, even even fleetingly, and then you are in the British papers. And at that very young age, what was the approach you found uh, to journalism, which was distinct in Britain as compared to India? I didn't grow up on an Indian paper. It's difficult for me to compare the two experiences. All I can say is that when I, I began on a local paper in Hampstead, which was quite lucky because Hampstead is a very special kind of village and 40 MPs live there. So it was quite political. You got good stories. But after eight months, I was very lucky to get a job uh, in the Glasgow Herald, um, which is a very rigorous paper. And I think I can now reveal I bluffed my way because uh, the editor came down and he referred to Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. And I happened to have that book. And as luck would have it, I was dusting that book the previous night. And I just happened to look at that book, you know, a chance in one chance in 10 billion. So I said to Alistair Warren, who was the editor in chief, he'd come from Glasgow to do the interview. And he said um, something about economics. And I said, yes, as Adam Smith points out in this chapter. So he was silent. He said, so Amit, um, when can you join us? <laughs> and then he asked me for my salary. I think I was getting about 10 pounds or something. So I thought if I ask for a lot, he will say, you know, he's greedy. And if I asked for nothing, not an increase, he'll say the boy has no ambition. So I said, sir, can I have... Uh, 10 pounds and 10 shillings. So he smiled and said, I think um, we can do a little bit better. So I started to what to me seemed like a huge salary. The London editor, where I, I went straight to Fleet Street. And that's very important because I had done a shift on, um, um, on, on the Sunday Express. And I used to get onto a number 11 bus and my heart used to beat a bit faster and, as it went down Fleet Street. Uh, rather like, um, you know, listening to the thunder of the presses in Bagbajar. I had a London editor called uh, David Dewar, very taciturn, uh, gruff, smiling man, 
with the heart of gold. So he would say two things. You must get the spelling right. So McDonald, it can be spelled M-A-C, capital D, or M small c, capital D. So he, when I came back and filed my copy, he would say, are you sure you've got it right? So spelling became a, um, an obsession. It remains an obsession. You know, you, and then he went to, when he went to a press conference, say someone would give a press conference uh, and say something at the press conference, then after the press conference, you would go and try and get something exclusive. So he, he would say, you haven't merged the thing. Can you say which is the bit he said in the press conference and which is the bit he said to you separately? And can you not mix up the two? Nowadays, of course, people mix up everything. But I think those were important things which were taught to me, the rigor. I think the Scots are quite rigorous in their education. And the English, um, they like to say the Scots are mean, but I found they were very generous, you know. And so in some ways, I like to think I'm an honorary Scotsman. I mean, I think was, I was spoiled beyond words. And uh, David Dewar was very upset when I left after three years and moved to the Telegraph. You know, as a journalist of Indian origin, did you find yourself consistently kind of being pigeonholed in the British newspapers or the Scottish newspapers, always ending up with a certain kind of desi story, you know, like, say, Salman Rushdie or Pamela Borders or much later Arundhati Roy and Aishwarya Rai? I think I've, it was an advantage because Aishwarya Rai, Salman Rushdie uh, and stories like that were not only Indian stories, they became global stories with uh, international repercussions. So I think being Indian initially, maybe you did a few Indian stories, but um, I wasn't pigeonholed. I think that uh, on the Telegraph, the glamorous end of reporting was the foreign reporting because you went and uh, lived in five-star hotels and copied Reuter and passed it off as your own copy. And English went out of his way to send me to the, you know, the hotspots of the world, so that it became quite embarrassing. There was one occasion, there was a chap called Ted Oliver. Uh, we, we were all told to get a visa for Beirut. There, there was a hijacking of a TWA uh, airplane, and uh, there was a Captain Testrake who had flown in. It was a, hijackings were very common then, and a, and a passenger had been shot by the gunman who had taken the so the foreign editor said, whoever gets the first visa goes. And then English, David English came in and said to John Moger, who was the foreign editor, said, uh, John, um, have you sent? Meaning, have you sent to Beirut? And um, John Moger said, uh, yes, uh, Ted Oliver is in this way. So I cringed because I knew what was coming. So he said, Amit, have you got a visa? And I said, yes, sir, I have. He said, Boja, uh, can you recall um, Ted Oliver, who was on his way to the airport, and Amit, you know, get a taxi. So that was a very way to be, a good way to become extremely unpopular with my colleagues. But uh, English would um, send me on impossible missions, nothing to do with India. And um, because I was Indian and managed to get the help of the Indian embassy, more often than not, 
the Indians would say to whoever was the head of state that I'd come to see, so they would look after me. So more often than not, I would get the story being an Indian. So it was a blessing in disguise. So I wasn't pigeonholed. And later on, after globalization, the India story grew. There were Indian millionaires. And now we have four Indians in the cabinet. So, you know, it's a good idea being pigeonholed as an Indian because you are doing the top stories in the country. Rishi Sunak, no one knew him, but I knew him when he was just a kid, had just come in, and now there's a biography of him, and he's being seriously spoken of as the next prime minister. So, good thing to be an Indian, no? So it was useful being Indian to land some foreign assignments all over the world, but yeah. perhaps also quite easy for you to land some interviews around the world, like Mubarak in Egypt or Gaddafi in Libya. And more recently, I think I remember you writing about Argentina and yeah. how you landed an interview there with Raul yeah. Alfonsin. Yeah. You know, so I presume this helped in uh, different ways other than just landing assignments. I think so. I think that uh, see, if you take Mubarak, what had happened was that, uh, just to put the story into context, I think it was a, a jet had been hijacked to Entebbe Airport in Uganda with a lot of uh, Jewish passengers on board. So Israel sent its um, special forces called Mossad, and they managed to kill the gunmen and rescue their Jewish passengers. It became a big movie called Raiden Entebbe. So the same thing happened with... Um, an Egypt airplane was hijacked out of, I think it was out of uh, Cyprus. It went to Libya. And the Mubarak, who was then president, uh, sent the Egyptian forces to broke in and killed all the, all the passengers. So he was far from being a hero. He was in a very difficult spot. So English thought that um, Amit should go and interview him. So I landed up in Egypt. And they just laughed at me and they said, you know, you're a nobody. Uh, the mail doesn't count. We have the New York Times waiting. So, you know, not a chance. So I flew back, but I had a friend, Suman Dube. He'd been to um, Dune School, you know, the Dune Network with Arun Puri and also Rajiv Gandhi. I think Rajiv was then prime minister. So I said, Suman, can you help? I didn't know what Suman did. But something happened on the network. I don't know if Rajiv spoke to Mubarak, said, you know, it's all right, you know, he's, he's one of us. So when I landed back uh, at Heathrow Airport, the Egyptian embassy, the ambassador was waiting. He said, why have you come back? He said, well, you know, they said, not a chance. He said, no, no, please don't be angry, go back. So I went back on the return flight. There was a there was, a, there was a plane, there was a car waiting. And to cut a long story, it just whisked me through uh, uh, passport control through um, to Golestan Palace. And then one flunky introduced me to, to another flunky, to another flunky, to another flunky, down this corridor of the palace. And I was giving up. Then I entered a room, and Mubarak was waiting there. And uh, he said, um, Rajiv's the pilot. I'm a pilot. So I thought, shall I crack a joke saying, you've both crash-landed your countries? So I thought, <laughs> no, no, don't, don't be silly. Don't risk it. So Mubarak then 
gave a sympathetic interview, or at least I wrote a very sympathetic piece, which um, Colonel Gaddafi read. I don't know how he read it. Must have been on the agency. So he called up the Daily Mail, and I said, could Amit come here tomorrow? Because I would like to give an interview. <laughs> so I ended up with uh, Gaddafi um, about a week later. And uh, then his, um, you know, he... he spoke to me. He said, um, gave a very sympathetic interview. But at the end of it, his head of communications then said to me, um, you know, the leader of the revolution, as they called him, has given an interview to you. We want to put that in the Libyan papers in the morning. How should we describe you? I said, well, um, you can say I'm just a junior reporter, you know, ordinary reporter. So I said, can we call you chief foreign correspondent? I said, no, I'm just just a very hood. So next day, I opened the paper. There's a big picture of um, Gaddafi and Libya uh, and, and, and me, you know, being interviewed. And it said, um, the leader of the revolution talking to the editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail. <laughs> and I thought, this is a sacking offence because my editor will say, you know, he's showing off, he's passing himself. But then I went to um, the Indian ambassador. He said, look, look, you must understand, he has to talk to someone matching. He can't be talking to a junior uh, reporter. So it's as much from their point of view. So that's how, you know, you referred to uh, Alphonsine. The war had ended and I had come back to, um, after, after a long, after the, Falklands War had come back home, and um, my wife said, oh, David English um, on the phone. So, you know, he's God. So I said, sir, so he said something. And I said, sir, why do you want me to go to Bognor Regis, which is a little seaside town in England? And I said, he said, no, no, not Bognor Regis, Amit. I want you to go to Buenos Aires tomorrow. Well, anyway. I didn't have a visa. I ended up in Miami where I had a friend, luckily, and he said, OK, I'll give you a visa, providing you, I, you buy me the most expensive meal in town. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I ended up in Buenos Aires. I went to see a, a lovely man called Lakhanlal Merotra, India's ambassador in Buenos Aires. And I said, sir, I'm in deep trouble because English wants me to get the first interview exclusive with Alphonsine, who's the president who's taken over. And uh, he said, very soft, I'll see what I can do. Anyway, he wrote a long list of people. And uh, I got a call from a place called Casa Rosada, Pink Palace. And they said, uh, Sigur Roy, um, your time is up because the president had given you 20 minutes. And I said, I didn't knew nothing about it. So I grabbed two interpreters because you can't get anything wrong. And I rushed out of breath, into the president's, and Alphonsine is waiting there. Uh, and he said, first, you must have some coffee. Then he said, have you done any shopping? I said, no. He said, go to Avenida Florida. You take my name, and you'll get a discount, which I, which I did later on. Then um, he said, um, you'll wonder why I have given you this interview. You see, he said, he said, look, I come from a humble background. I've just moved into the president's palace. 
And um, when your ambassador's letter came asking that I see you, I had just been watching the film Gandhi. How can I refuse you? So the trick was he put Amit Roy is the correspondent of the Amrit Bazar Patrika. So he's not seen to be giving an interview to an enemy paper from Britain after the war. But he said he also writes a little bit for the Daily Mail. So after the interview, we said, instead of 20 minutes, it was an hour and a half because we talked very frankly. As I was leaving, he said, Senior uh, Roy, um, I just wonder if you could do me a favor. I know you're here for the Amrit Bazar Patrika, but do you think you could get a couple of lines into the Daily Mail, which was the whole game anyway? English was, of course, thrilled. He put a big picture of Alphonsine on page one, and then he put an even bigger picture, male exclusive, world exclusive, of me. It was very embarrassing. When I came back uh, to Heathrow, I had all these um, stuff I bought, you know, leather goods and stuff. So the Heathrow, the immigration officer, said, um, how much is this value? I said, you know, maybe a couple of thousand dollars. And he said, do you realize what the permission is? The, I said, you know, $100, and I'll pay the tax. He said, where have you been? He said, I've been covering the war. He said, uh, OK, let go. Just go through. So, so um, he was uh, quite uh, lenient. This, this was the story that got Peregrine Worsthorn's uh, go Yes, yes, Peregrine Worsthorn, very charming, um, fastidious dresser. He was editor of the Sunday Telegraph, and he um, arrived in Buenos Aires, and legend has it that instead of asking for the interview with the president, he let it be known that he would be at home to the president, and if the president would be so good as to drop in for a sherry, he would be very pleased to see the president. Now, I don't know if this story is right, but uh, his request for an interview, I think there were so many, was not successful. So he wrote a long, you know, being the editor of the Sunday Telegraph, uh, he doesn't have shortage of space. So he said, uh, of course, he gave an interview to Amit Roy because the uh, president wanted to be kind to a third world country and a third world reporter. But I came and reported to um, something quite important, which uh, Alphonsine had said to me. He said, look, we have a treaty called the Rio Tre Treaty, under which if any country is attacked, America comes to our aid. But America helped England in this war. So we are thinking of joining the non-aligned movement in which India is a leading country. So could you pass this message on to your ambassador, which I did to, to Lakhanlal Mehrotra. So he just said, thank you, Amit. I'll see what I can do. Short while later, there was an announcement out of Delhi saying that uh, um, every year we have a dignitary at the Republic Day Parade. We've had uh, François Mitterrand from France one year, then Yasser Arafat, and for the coming year, His Excellency Raul Alfonsin, the new president of, uh, of Argentina, has kindly consented to be our president. My wife then said, Ahmed, there's a call for you from Buenos Aires. And it was the president's um, chef du cabinet, his uh, chief of staff, said, um, oh, two things. Um, we are thinking of naming a, a street in, uh, in Buenos Aires after 
Tagore. They used to call him Tagore because Tagore had met Victoria Ocampo and I had funnily bumped into her um, great-granddaughter one evening by accident. And then uh, he said, anyway, um, uh, His Excellency, the President, would like you to know that the doors of Buenos Aires are always open to you. So it was a very nice gesture. Super. You know, most of us journalists are generally heroes of our own stories and many times very validly. Has it always been such a smooth ride for you in journalism or have you also had to make many judgments which went wrong, mistakes which now bring a smile when you look back at them? Have there been some of those misjudgments too? Yes. I mean, in fact, I like to describe myself most accurately as a has-been who never was. Um, my career is a, is a long string of uh, too many, uh, too many failures. To give you, I think you're taking Winston Churchill just far too seriously. No, no. It's, it's, a, it's, it's to give you one example. Um, I, I said to Peter Eastwood that um, I wanted to leave for the Guardian because the Guardian had offered me a job, um, and I would travel, which I hadn't. So he said, where would you like to go? I said, I would like to go to Rhodesia because uh, Rhodesia was then becoming Zimbabwe central. And Peter Eastwood had this habit of not ever giving reporters anything they wanted. But he was kind to me. He said, I will send you to Tehran where, you know, the Shah had fallen, but nothing much was happening. But within a few days, the American embassy was captured. And um, so I told that, I was on the telegram, I told a man called Ricky Marsh, who was the foreign editor, uh, Ricky, please don't give them any publicity. This is just a bunch of students. They've captured the embassy. I tell you, it'll be over in two hours, guarantee. So he said, two hours. No, no. Two hours, two hours. I, I don't want to write on this because it's just encouraging a bunch of uh, students. He said, no, 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 please file every single word and give us the description. So I padded it out, wrote 2,000 words. And the morning, I got a little message. You know, they send you a telex. It said, uh, your Iran file leads paper. So I couldn't understand. It took me a while to understand that I, as, uh, as an Indian reporter, a uh, very junior cub reporter had got the main page one splash in the in the telegraph and that continued uh, the hostage crisis far from being over in two hours lasted for 444 days and the telegraph kept me there for 444 days <laughs> so we all make mistakes and we learn from those mistakes. that was not the only mistake uh, i arrived in buenos aires again for the mail and then I went to the offices of the Buenos Aires Herald to get a big bit of background. Um, and um, so the Argentine military forces had captured the Falkland Islands, which they called Malvinas. That's the, their word for it. So I said to the editor of the, of, of, of the Buenos Aires Herald, an English paper, just wanted a bit of background. I said, look, I understand the British. This will not become a shooting war. It will be peace talks, be over. And um, English then said to me, I, want, I would like you to write a color piece from their battle cruiser, the Belgrano. You know, get onto the Belgrano. So every morning I went to the Belgrano 
and said, uh, please, 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 can I get on to the Belgrano? And they said, look, we are not taking any reporters, not even Argentine reporters, but if we take any reporters, we will take uh, your name will be on top of the list. And one night, uh, I think it was after midnight, there was a flash from Joint Chiefs of Staff, an announcement saying the Belgrano is missing. Half an hour later, the Belgrano has gone down. It had been sunk the British, by the British nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror with heavy loss of life. So I rang John Moja, who was the foreign editor. He said, you will be mightily relieved that I didn't get on to the Belgrano. So he said, not at all, old boy. Uh, it would have been great if you had gone down with the Belgrano. Of course, I would like you to be rescued and uh, uh, survived and come out with the story and pictures. And uh, for the male, pictures is more important. Which leads you know, me to the story of uh, Aishwarya Rai. You know, I started going to Cannes a lot. And Aishwarya um, made a big hit. Cannes has got a lot of beautiful women, you know, all the Hollywood stars. But for some reason, Aishwarya turned their heads. So I said, you know, Aishwarya, to, to the Telegraph, Aishwarya is coming here and she's doing a Gurinda Chadda film called Provoked. Um, shall I write a piece? So they said, yeah, yeah, our photographer is there. Just get him to take a, a picture. You do a thousand words and, um, and then we'll take the picture. So he took the picture, filed the picture. And when they saw the picture, they said, I mean, a slight change of plans. We'll take the picture big. Just do a 50-word caption. <laughs> You know, listening to you, you know, really reminds me of Evelyn Waugh's scoop. In many ways, the fun that a British foreign correspondent has is something that really seeps through when you speak of all of these misadventures and adventures. Well, you know, um, Evelyn Waugh's uh, scoop is based on um, um, a senior, the late Bill Deeds, Lord Deeds, who was on the Daily Telegraph. He was an MP and um, he was uh, a great f uh, friend of mine. So he wrote a, a, a book and um, about uh, the Scoop. So I asked him, is Scoop written, was it based on you? So he gave me a non-committal answer, but he, you know, autographed it, the late Bill Deeds, and he became editor. And he found a wonderful way of dealing with staff problems. He would go on holiday. You know, I mean, even as we speak of the scoop and uh, Evelyn War, you know, I think what also strikes me when I hear you is how much more fun British journalism uh, has been, is, and perhaps will always be compared to the American style of journalism. And I don't know if you share that view, if you if you look at it that way, but uh, it seems to me that risk-averse, safety-first American style stands in stark contrast to this kind of, you know, uh, take-no-prisoners kind of journalism that the British have always uh, followed for a long time. Evelyn was just one of many stories that we could talk about. But from your vantage position, Amitda, what do you uh, see this as? I mean, do you see a distinction between American and British styles? Do you think that has had an impact on Indian journalism as you can see it from that distance? Is there a distinction and has that impacted India because we've now swerved away from the British model to the more anodyne American style? Well, I think some of Indian journalism, from what I read from a distance, uh, is uh, very good. With uh, British journalism, I would say 
one of the things that I was taught, you know, you're given conflicting lessons that you have to be, because there's so much competition, you have to be first with the story. And they tell you, look, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. And to some extent, you make it up, you know. Um, and, and I won't reveal the times that I and my colleagues have uh, not been entirely scrupulous. Now, a story can be told of a colleague of mine called uh, Godfrey Barker, um, and um, he invented a number of characters, including a character called Raphael Dunvant. And he did a story on, um, on weather. You know, the, we like doing stories about uh, rain in England, weather, because if it has rained heavily, people want to get up in the morning, turn to the telegraph and read it's rained very heavily. So there was a huge storm and there had been lightning. And he said um, the lightning had interrupted a cricket match and had hit the leg iron of the umpire. You know, he had, there was a warm wounded and had fused the leg iron. So a local paper rang up from Gloucestershire and said, um, we are only a little paper, paper, I'm sorry, so sorry to disturb you, but it's got a local angle in Gloucestershire. We would uh, like to follow it up. And I passed the call to Godfrey Barker, who'd made up this character of the umpire and he said of course we would like to help you but his family have requested privacy <laughs> a story not very dissimilar from what philip knightley narrates in his memoirs about a similarly made up story in australia about about a person called the hook uh, and uh, you'll yes. find that in the hacks yes. which is a fantastic yes. story well philip um, um of course has got a lot of indian connections you know, married to an Indian. I went to his funeral. Um, I mean, I was just a cub reporter, went to the tel Telegraph. One of my sad duties is that I've now been to so many fun funerals of colleagues who were very senior reporters when uh, I, I joined. But on coming to the distinction between American journalists and British journalists, Americans do like attribution and just... Um, Just a little night before much. last, I saw this film called The Post about the Washington. It is such a great movie. I think, I mean, I was thinking that uh, when when Ben Bradley says uh, uh, we print, I was just watching this film alone. I stood up and I clapped. You know, such a silly thing to do. Think that they do take risks. And the story of the Washington Post and 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 they have had a war with Trump, have they not? But in England, um, I I think that. Uh, on the tabloids, they do try and doorstep, meaning they don't take no for an answer. And sometimes you cross over and um, you know, stir your finger, as they say, in the souls of people. And it led to the closure of the news of the world, um, which, which was a disreputable uh, episode in the history of tabloid. So it's a mixed picture in England, but you do try and get the story right, I think. But I think Britain and the United States are now united by the same man. In fact, a childhood friend of Philip Knightley in that sense, Rupert Murdoch, you know, he's changed politics in both sides of the uh, pond, so, uh, so to speak, uh, first uh, in Britain and then, of course, now with Trump in the U.S. through Fox News. And at the Sunday Times, I think you worked under Andrew Neil, whom Murdoch brought in um, a bit after Harold Evans was eased out. How do you view Murdoch 
the Australian turned American, the man who changed the face of Fleet Street in a way and indeed changed the face of journalism worldwide. Yeah, it's become fashionable in Murdoch to say bad things about him. But I um, take a slightly positive uh, view because uh, I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to leave the Daily Mail uh, and go to the Sunday Times. But my wife um, saw my, um, Andrew Neil on television and said, he's a nice man, you better join. So um, Andrew Neil then uh, convinced me that I sh should join. And what had happened was that on the, in the Telegraph, I had been in Italy or somewhere and had done a story. And then they said, um, we're going to put your story on page one. And then a few minutes later, they said, sorry, the printers have pulled the plug because the printers, these were the days of hot metal. So when Murdoch came in, uh, the papers moved out of Fleet Street to a place called Wapping. And they got rid of all the hot metal printers and employed people who worked on this electronic typesetting. And had it not been for Murdoch, I think the British press would have been largely killed off. So although people say that Murdoch has uh, somehow made journalism disreputable, you have to balance it with the argument that had it not been for Murdoch, there wouldn't have been a British press. So I think that on balance, I have good things to say about Rupert Murdoch for that reason. Fair enough. Amitda, as we wind down, I think I would be failing in my duties if I also did not ask you about how you approach the writing craft. Because one of the standout aspects of your being a foreign correspondent in London is the way you craft some of your stories. And the London Eye diary you write in the Telegraph every fortnight is, I think, superbly done. And I know there's no one way of doing this kind of stuff, but how do you compose your thoughts and put them down, you know, in this kind of a manner, which is so engaging, even for an audience far removed from the incident? Well, you have your heroes... If there is any man I would like to copy, shamelessly, it would be James Cameron. One of his books, I think it's my one of my Bibles, called Point of Departure. And he wakes up uh, in a hotel room and uh, he says, um, where am I? Am I, be am I alive? Am I, you know, it's this twilight world between being alive and not being alive. Which hotel room is this? And he was a great... Uh, fan of India. He went to India and covered uh, transfer of power. And he said, uh, India irritates me a lot. Nothing works. Hotel room booking doesn't work. Uh, you go there, you made a booking, the booking is not there. He said, India irritates me such a lot. And I realized how much it irritated me on my 28th trip. <laughs> so, um, to answer your question, I don't think you sit down and you agonize because you're writing to a deadline. So much of it is by instinct. And I think as I get older, I think I find it harder and harder to write beyond six paragraphs. But there are certain things that, uh, that you know, you are taught as a, as, a, as, a, as a young reporter that write the story, you know, try and put in whatever you want to say at the top because the subs will cut the story from the bo bottom um, upwards. 
And then, if you get too big-headed, I remember when you when you're in some far-flung post and you ring up um, your copy takers, you know, you ring up on the phone and you had a thing called copy taker. They, they take dictation, they've got earphones on. And you begin by saying, um, you know, your name, I'm reporting from uh, such and such a place. And then the sub copy takers will say, oh, is there any more of, is there much more of this? <laughs> yeah. You know, you've been the Europe correspondent of the Telegraph for a long time now. What was it like to work under a really iconic publisher like Avik Sarkar, who was among the four Indian publishers Nicholas Coleridge actually profiled in the Paper Tigers, the book? Uh, what is your favorite story of Avik Babu that you have never told anybody? Actually, I, I would say that uh, Avik Babu has a touch of uh, David English about him, that... Um, I saw David English do something which I've seen no other papers do, and the advertising people would tear their hair out. He would come in, and if the advertising um, spoiled the look of a double-page spread, he would throw the advertising out. I've seen him do that. And Avik Babu would invest in, in his journalism. I mean, going to Cannes is very expensive, but he's never quibbled about investment in journalists. I think he's uh, someone who is interested in gossip, his interest in journalism and in the many, many emails he has uh, sent me, he has never, ever said, you've got the story right. He would say, <laughs> whatever angle you've taken, it's should have another angle. But uh, he's been very forgiving. He would, he would just send, send a, a, a 50 word. He would say story and then um, something. The other day he sent me uh, an email saying, um, story, Ravneet Gill, uh, a pastry chef, is uh, taking London by storm. So I think that uh, he understands uh, um, papers. He got involved in the minutiae of journalism. And I think he loves, he loves newspapers. So it's been a, a, a privilege, I think, to have worked for him and David English and many, many other editors. Once upon a time, most quality Indian newspapers had full-fledged correspondence in England and in London. Uh, that has now certainly changed as far as I can see, and there are only a handful of them left. What are your standout memories of the good and the great Indian journalists you've rubbed shoulders with in London? The K.N. Maliks, the Batu Ghatanis, the Kailash Budwars, the Vijay Dats. What are the yes. memories you have? Yes. Um, well, I, I remember I was just um, a very young journalist, just starting out, when Frank Moraes came. He was a legendary editor of the Times of India, and he had supported the Dalai Lama when the Dalai Lama fled Tibet and arrived in India. So towards the end of his life, Frank Moraes came to, uh, to London, and I met him. So I remember the Dalai Lama coming to London, and the, the first thing he said to me is, where is Frank Morris? Where is, I couldn't understand him. Then I realized he's asking after Frank Moraes. So I remember Frank Moraes. I remember S. Nihal Singh, who was editor of the, of the Statesman. What happened was there was a young boy who broke into India House, and um, he was waving a gun. British armed police broke in and shot him dead. So some of us reporters went outside. 
but we weren't allowed because you know we were too junior and I remember Nihal Singh coming out looking very sober and grim and I wanted to just ask him he said no I've got to file I've got to file and I said I'd like to be like that one day no, that's super uh, one last question uh, before we get into a few you know one liners uh, the role of the foreign correspondent in indian media and perhaps even in british media would certainly more so in indian media uh, you know declining consistently across the world for indian media very few correspondents in the us very few in the uk very few in none at all in the, in africa perhaps just one in south america I presume this is also somewhat the case for British newspapers, certainly very much the case for American newspapers. And you've been a foreign correspondent for quite some time. How do you see this declining role for the foreign correspondent in, in media, generally speaking, not just newspapers, but even television and websites? Yes, I think that foreign news coverage has declined. I mean, once I take the example of, of the Daily Telegraph from what it was, to what papers would become once upon a time. Eastwood, who was a managing editor, and he ran the news operation. He would he had a um, room of about between 50 and 100 reporters, and he could say, I could um, pick anyone from here and send them abroad. My regret was that he never used to send me abroad, and I wanted to be sent abroad. And that didn't come till much later. But he believed that you send your reporters all over the world for three months on a rotation, even if something wasn't happening, on the principle that if the reporter was there, something would happen. And money was not an, not an expense. When I was in Iran, uh, my copy, and I, I remember once I wrote six stories on a day, would be syndicated to 400 papers. So it paid its way back. Now, it shifted from that to a situation where you would send a reporter from London to cover a story only if there was a British angle involved. So if, if it was a story important only in local terms, say in Kenya or South Africa, they would not send. But if there was a British angle, they would send. Now, they tend to rely on um, local, local stringers, so the BBC, for example, tends to employ more Indian reporters in India. Many papers have cut back because it's very expensive. And also, I think another change is that there is a focus on domestic news. On uh, And I think that's the, the, the same everywhere. And uh, a further change is that comment, which used to be kept separate from the news coverage in a lot of papers, comment is now on page one, and the distinction between hard news and comment is blurred. And on online, uh, it's the comment that is projected rather than the hard news. You know, with rolling news, people get their news on, on your, on your uh, mobile phones anyway. So the comment and the, 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 the features uh, is much more important. So I, I think that's the big change. And foreign coverage has been cut back. But when, when a big story happens, and if a war happens, the British papers still like to send another telegraph. If there was a war, and the telegraph loves a war, it's a very much a war newspaper, they would um, occupy a room. A room would be cleared, and they would bring a tin hat and hang it in the corner. They would produce a war map and put stickers in, so it becomes the war operations room, and uh, people look very serious.
Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned the India story a little earlier, and uh, I presume the India story, as you have witnessed it and as you have reported, has changed massively since you started your career. You know, instead of a, let's say, a goodness gracious me in the past, which mocked the Indians, you now have a suitable boy. Uh, you have billionaire businessmen. You like the mittels. You have politicians demanding reparations from India. But what do you think uh, is the is the current view of India in Britain? You know, uh, is there a sense of alarm at the way India is turning out, or is it just, you know, even Stephen? To um, uh, answer that question seriously, what happened in 1993 was a big change when India embarked on globalization under Manmohan Singh. The Indian stories migrated from the news pages to the business pages. And on the business pages, the FT in particular took a lot of interest in India. There was more business from uh, the UK to India and also Indian investment from India in the UK. So India is one of the highest investors. So that has... Uh, informed uh, the coverage to a very great extent. And when you are covering um, business, there is no point in being, you know, slanting the stories and making it pro-Indian or anti-Indian. That doesn't come into it. I mean, business will like you to tell it like it is. So that's one big change. The implied question is, how is Modi being covered? Well, the FT is cautious. Uh, Boris generally... Um, because there's a big Gujarati population and they tend to vote Tory and the Indians start to vote Tory and Modi has a big following among the Gujarati population. The government here on the whole is doesn't want to interfere in the, Indian, in, in the internal politics of India. Uh, the, the Telegraph is generally neutral. The Guardian is very critical because um, that's... Uh, the, the, the way papers are. So there is a, a, a variety of views as far as India is concerned. I mean, I realized in a small way that the coverage of India was altering uh, one day at the Sunday Telegraph when Charles Moore was editor before he moved to the, to the, to the Daily Telegraph as editor. He's now Lord Moore. Uh, someone said, um, oh, Amit is yawning. And... Um, Another chap snitched. He said, oh, he goes to a lot of parties. So um, Charles Moore said, which parties? Um, I said, well, you know, I'd gone to Ramola Bachchan's party. And Ramola had Bachchan, this is um, Amitabh Bachchan's sister-in-law, had started giving parties. Now, her parties were not just parties, but it was a gathering of um, the heavy hitters. You know, uh, Imran Khan would turn up. Anil Agarwal would come, the Hindujas would come. So it was a mixture of big business, important politicians. So you could see that India was being taken more seriously by the guest list. So he said, oh, I want you to go and do a story. And so I said to Charles, well, Charles, this is Friday, it's a deadline. I can't go and, and, and waste my time at a party. He said, listen, Amit, unless you notice, I'm the editor. You'll do what I tell you to do. Just put your bow tie on. And go. So I came back on Saturday morning and did a story about Ramola Bachchan with the picture and everything and the party. And the Sunday Times then copied it. 
uh, did a, a magazine story and ran it as an exclusive. So people pinch stories from each other. And finally, Amitda, I would like you to offer a piece of advice to young journalists, student journalists on how to spot stories or how to write stories. What would you really one line uh, advice be for young, young, young journalists? It's very difficult to get, give advice. Um, I've asked advice from, from my senior colleagues. One advice I got from a chap called Jerry Kemp. He was uh, six foot tall. He looked like a senior army officer. And the Telegraph had a habit of sending um, journalists to, to Belfast. You know, Northern Ireland was in trouble. Army had gone in. Uh, there was a lot of uh, violence there. And the IRA would, uh, the Irish Republican Army would shoot at would the army, the army would shoot. There were a lot of suckers. There were a lot of deaths. And uh, he said to me, oh, you are going there. I'll give you one piece of advice. If you are caught between snipers, between the gunmen on one side and the gunmen on the other side, always walk. Don't run. Because if you run, they think you are, you're something to hide. The gun will follow you. If you walk, they'll say, it's okay. So he took it to a bit too far. He wore a Stetson and lit up a cigar. I mean, I didn't go that far. But whenever I've been in a situation, I've tried not to um, pretend that I'm army. I mean, I didn't wear flak jackets or things like that. So I would say, walk, don't run. And what will you tell someone who aspires to be a foreign correspondent? Is it easy? Is this a course you would suggest? Oh, a bit of luck, I think. Um, luck comes into it uh, such a lot. I mean, I, and, and what can I say? That um, a lot of editors have been very good to me, promoted me beyond my talents. So very difficult to give advice. I, 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 I would say, please go and watch The Post. Watch Ben Bradley, whom it was my great pleasure to meet once. Just watch that film. And everything you want to know about journalism is in that movie. A couple of books and authors on journalism that you would... I would just say one book. You know, I've mentioned it. James Cameron's Point of Departure. If you were to get around to doing an autobiography of yours, what would you call it? Ah, yes. Yes, I think a friend of mine, David uh, Tristan Davis, who wrote the obituary column... Uh, in uh, in the Telegraph, um, he said, if he wrote an Indian obituary, he would ring me up and said, um, Amit, have you got any anecdotes? He said, oh. and uh, then he stopped one day and he said, Amit, have you written your memoirs? And I said, no. He said, oh, pity. Uh, and poor David passed away the other day. But at the, at, the, at the Telegraph, we had a joke. We used to say to the obituary writers, people are dying to get into your columns. If I were to write a book. I mean, I find it very difficult to write beyond six paragraphs, but I'll just end with, with a little anecdote. My first day at the, at the Daily Telegraph, I was taken on um, on a six-month trial, and Bill Tad, who was the news editor, said, oh, I'm taking on three boys. Uh, there were two English and one Indian. No promises of a job at the end of it, a six-month uh, trial. And on my first day, someone came into the office of the Telegraph, and um, 
They said, oh, is anyone free? So I was just someone, the junior. So he said, oh, Amit, can you go down and meet this chap? So this person came in and he looked me and at me and he said, uh, I said, can I help you? He said, I, I said, yes, I'd like to see a reporter. I said, I am a reporter. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I would like to see a real reporter. So I came back and I said to Bill Tad, he was looking at uh, some magazine. He didn't look up. He said, yes. I said, Mr. Tad, yes. He says he would like to see a real reporter. So he didn't look up. He said, tell him to buzz off. Only he didn't use the word buzz. He used a four-letter word. <laughs> so it showed that the Telegraph uh, uh, wouldn't tolerate that kind of racism. Um, and uh, three months down the line, uh, what happened was, again, a bit of luck. You know, Tariq Ali, who's the great student leader, led the Vietnam demo. He'd been quiet for a very long time. So he turned up at a demonstration against a Portuguese leader called Caetano. So I was sent to cover it. So I said, um, um, Mr. Ali, sir, um, do you think I could just get a quote from you? He said, who do you work for? And I said, I work for the Daily Telegraph, sir. He said, I didn't think they employed blacks. So he, he saw me so embarrassed, he took pity on me. He said, no, what it was is that um, I was trying to get a British passport, so I was a bit quiet. So I said, you've got a British passport. So I came back and I wrote a story saying, that Tariq Ali, the scourge of the British establishment, has acquired a British passport. He said, it's only a travel document. So they used the story. So next day, Ted called me in, the news editor. He said, how are you getting on? I said, all right, sir. He said, I suppose you want a job. I said, yes, sir, I would like a staff job. So next day, I got my staff appointment. And someone once saw his file and said, that Amit Roy could be a little racist. So he put uh, um, Roy can see both sides of race question. <laughs> so he gave me the staff job. Whereas the two English uh, journalists who were put on trial, they were not given a job. So it was a bit of luck. And it is to Tariq Ali and my racist reporting that I owe my career on the Telegraph. Super. Thank you, Amitda, for joining me on this podcast and retracing your wonderful journey in Jazam. Thank you so much for your time. Very kind of you. Thank you. And that's Amit Roy, veteran foreign correspondent with a superb eye for the news and the newsworthy. And thank you all very much for joining us. का कीड़ा कहा तो दूसरा मुझे गंगू तेली कहने आ गया इनके एक नेता ने मुझे पागल कुत्ता कहा तो दूसरा नेता सामने आया और मुझे बसबासुर की उपाधि दे दी उन्होंने मुझे बंदर कहा इनके और एक मंत्री ने मुझे वायरस कहा 
दूसरे ने दाऊद इब्राहिम का दर्जा दे दिया इनके एक नेता ने मुझे हिटलर कहा तो दूसरे ने मुझे बदतमीज नालायक बेटा कहा इतना ही नहीं मुझे रैबीज बीमारी से पीड़ित बंदर बोला गया चूहा बोला गया लहू पुरुष बोला गया असत्य का सौदागर बोला गया J-Pod was composed by me, Krishna Prasad. You can follow more of Amit Roy's journalism at IndianJournalismReview.com or on Twitter at Churumuri. Thank you all very much for joining us.